the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine-ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code PODCAST. Was born in San Francisco to a family that believed in evolution. We moved to the campus at the University of California, Berkeley, when I was relatively young. And I was raised as an evolutionist. I believed it. I taught it. I earned my science degrees as an evolutionist. I taught it from the seventh grade to the university level. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. My one question in a matter of seconds would simply be, please tell me, where did the original perfect information come from that we are copying? and welcome back to the 180 cast this is the podcast where we explore the brains of people who have radically changed their opinions so if you want to understand what convinces people to change even deeply held beliefs please keep on listening i am your host georgie borman i have retained an interest in today's topic since i was a little kid i mean like a little little kid So full disclosure for those who don't know, I was homeschooled and raised in a Christian household. So as you might imagine, evolution and creationism um, were things that were discussed quite a bit in my home. Every once in a while, I still go scroll around the um, CMI website, that's Creation Ministries International, and see what interesting white papers sort of grab my interest because I'm still fascinated by science, even though I don't didn't get a degree in it. And um, sometimes, you know, you just need to dunk your head into some things that are really challenging, even just to remind yourself that you are just a peon and don't know jack squat about anything. (laughs) Really knocks you down a peg or two. Um, But before I introduce my guest today, take a second to subscribe to the podcast and share this link with a friend or two who would want to hear an engaging discussion on this topic or who, you know, just might like thought-provoking discussions, because that is what the 180 cast is for. 
Okay, so my guest today is Dr. Grady McMurtry. He is a biblical scientific creationist apologist with creationworldview.org, and I am very pleased he could join me today to talk about his 180 on a topic that people on both sides of the debate are extremely passionate about. So, Dr. McMurtry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate you mentioning that I'm the president and founder of Creation Worldview Ministries. Uh, and I am a biblical scientific creationist, and I'm very glad to hear about your background. Yeah, I yeah, I really enjoyed being homeschooled. And interestingly enough, the next podcast that we're going to record is actually about homeschooling, so that'll be fun too. Um, all right, so you used to believe in evolution. I think you said in one of your videos that you were um, a trained evolutionist from birth, or, or something along those lines. Can you take me back? Yeah, can you take me back to your mindset uh, as an evolutionist and, and why you held to that conviction? Well, I certainly would like to give you my background. I would point out that I was never a militant, shaking your fists in the face mm-hmm. of God kind of evolutionist, but I was raised as an evolutionist. I believed it. I taught it. I earned my science degrees as an evolutionist. I taught it from the seventh grade to the university level. Uh, I was born in San Francisco to a family that believed in evolution. We moved to the campus at the University of California, Berkeley, when I was relatively young. And I attended my elementary and junior high school years in Berkeley and lived on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley, because my father uh, was a student there, earned his degrees there, became a teaching professor there, at one time a secretary to the presence. And when I was not in the public school system learning about evolution in elementary school, I used to spend my time in the paleontology laboratories at the University of California, Berkeley, learning about dinosaurs, fossils, evolutionary theory from PhDs, And I learned about it so well that by the time I hit the third grade, they used to borrow me from one classroom to the other in the California public school system. And I was teaching the other children about dinosaurs, fossils, evolutionary theory, because I knew more about them than the teachers did. That's interesting. You know, it's funny you mentioned paleontology. I took a few credits in college where um, I worked in the lab and... And he basically had me like sorting through bones of, you know, like ancient bison and things like that. It was, it was really fun. I love that stuff so much. Um, I went to the university of Washington. So, uh, like I said, I really like science. (laughs) Yes. Um, all right. So what led you to change your mind? How did you make this 180? Well, to continue the story a little bit, uh, when I went to high school, we moved to Washington, D.C. because my father took a job with the government. And uh, I used to immerse myself again, not only in evolution in high school, but also at the Smithsonian because I had open access down there, spent a lot of time down there, particularly the Natural History Museum. And as I said, I went on to earn degrees in evolution. Um, But regardless of that, uh, I've always been a seeker of truth. You know, even, even... from birth, as I like to put it, my, my mother said that um, I was born teaching. And I figured she had to know she was there at the time. <laughs> um, but, of course, I was teaching evolution because I was never uh, exposed to the scientific alternative to the various theories of evolution. Uh, I would like to think that, of course, uh, my teachers wouldn't lie to me and so Since I was only being taught one side of the issue, I simply accepted evolution as true. But I was seeking truth. Now, if you're going to seek truth and you find it, you have to change if you're going to maintain intellectual honesty. 
Now, in my case, uh, after having earned science degrees in evolution, but continuing to seek truth, at the age of 27, I simply said enough is enough. Now, I am 72 years old at this time, and back in the 50s, 60s when I was being educated, uh, and actually I wouldn't say that, I wasn't really educated. Uh, to teach only one side of an issue is intellectual bigotry. And since I was only taught the one side, I accepted it, uh, not realizing until later that teachers will lie to you. They will lie to you for a variety of reasons, including simply themselves not. Do you knowing. mean do you mean lie purposely or lie out of well, like I, out of I'm, ignorance? I'm about to expand on that. I, okay. Some some lied to me, not even knowing that they were lying. I, I want to completely say that up front. Some simply parroted what they were taught. That's basically what I did. Uh, some did it just to get a paycheck. Um, but there were those in my life who, in fact, knew it was wrong and told it to me anyway. So there, if you read in the Bible, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16 to the end of the chapter, Paul wrote my biography 2,000 years ago. He says that there are those who will suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and he continues to elaborate. And that's basically the way I was educated. I was only shown one side. That's not education, that's indoctrination. And so while I was not militant, I was indoctrinated. But at the age of 27, having been around Christianity, you, you, you cannot have been born as an early baby boomer as I am. Uh, you could not have been raised in the United States in the 50s and 60s without knowing something about Christianity. You know, it was still very much ubiquitous at that time. What's called the Bible Belt still existed. Today, it's a historical thing. But um, you, you had to know about Christianity. And, of course, I knew about other religions as well. But I knew the claims of Christianity. I knew that Jesus Christ was supposed to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I didn't believe it, but I certainly knew about it. There were a few Christians who had walked a Christian walk in front of me. A few had tried to reach out to me very ineffectively because they were using the wrong bait. Um, but at 27, I simply said, look, enough is enough. Either Jesus Christ is telling the truth, he is the Son of God, he is God, he is a Savior, or he's not. I mean, it's very simple. Uh, it's not an argument that's new with me. It's an argument that has gone back for 2,000 years. It's just that at the age of 27, I did ask myself that question. And he's either lying because he's knowingly lying or unknowingly lying, but he's either lying or he's telling the truth. Now, I have two doctorates. Um, I'm a lifetime member of Mensa. I'm a lifetime member of Intertel. Uh, just to establish some credentials that... That I is quite the credentials, actually. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Um, but I simply decided to intellectually, academically, look at the claims of Jesus Christ, because that was the right bait for me. You know, the Holy Spirit always uses the right bait. And for me, it was the intellect. So uh, when people become Christians, as I would then do a little later, um, no one comes 100% this way emotionally or 100% intellectually that way. Everybody comes in a spectrum, somewhere between the two. Some more emotionally, some more intellectually. For me, I, I describe it as 98% intellectually and 2% emotionally. But what I did was for six months, I used my academic scholastic skills. I looked at the Bible for the first time. I recognized that the four Gospels were basically legal depositions. I think we could put it that way, four eyewitness accounts. 
I went on to read histories outside of the Bible. There's approximately a dozen reliable historians who do mention the man Jesus Christ, uh, starting with Flavius Josephus, but he is not the only one. And therefore we have the historical record of his existence. Uh, his existence is better established than, say, Homer. Um, therefore, uh, no reliable historian would ever doubt his existence. What people do is try to determine whether he was telling the truth or not. Uh, was he merely a man who made certain claims, or was he, in fact, God in the flesh, the Theanthropos? So after six months of reading all these histories and reading the Bible for the first time, I came to a realization that Jesus was telling the truth, that he was exactly who he said he was. For me, after six months, I'm trying to make this a synopsis, but for me, after six months, the single last straw to that decision was that we know of over 500 human beings who saw him after his resurrection and were willing to die without recanting. That is one of the most powerful witnesses the world has ever seen. After all, no one will voluntarily die to support the lie of another. And so if you're one person willing to die, that's certainly a witness. But if over 500 people saw him alive after the resurrection and would not recant, but would suffer the death most of them on a crucifixion, uh, that is a tremendous witness that the resurrection really did occur. And therefore, in a room by myself, I didn't have any human being guiding me. Uh, but after the six months of study in a room by myself, I simply came to the conclusion Jesus was telling the truth. As a seeker of truth, I had to accept that. So I became a Christian, again, in a room by myself. But I knew so little about it that I actually uh, made an appointment with an associate pastor of a church nearby to go in and ask a simple question. Uh, this gentleman was kind enough to accept my coming to his office, and I explained in long terms what I've just explained to you in short terms. And then I asked him the question, was there anything else I needed to do? If you think about a scientist, we expect a checklist at the back of the book, and there isn't one. Right. And so, having explained what I had gone through and my decision, uh, I asked him, is there anything else I need to do? And that kind of took him back, certainly a question he was not expecting. But after a few moments of introspection, he looked at me and said, so your decision is firm. And I said, if you knew me, you wouldn't ask the question. Which, again, took him back a little bit. But he said, okay. And he opened up the Bible and showed me where I needed to be baptized in water. He showed me in the Bible where I needed to make it public. I said, fair enough. Uh, the next weekend I made it public. A couple of weeks after that was baptized. But, of course, having gone through that experience and having now started attends a church, I had a really big problem. Now, what since you that? homeschool, which I, which I thoroughly sponsor if it's done right, uh, can you figure out what my problem was? Was it evolution? Well, close, close. Let's was put it, it the uh, reliability of the Genesis account? Well, let's put it this way. How can you be a teacher of evolution and have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe? You see, I had a problem. And so as you're kind of heading to in the right direction, the question was then, well, 
was what I had taught others okay, or was it not? You know, did God use some kind of an evolutionary process of one sort or another to arrive at where we are today, creating slowly, gradually over millions, billions of supposed years? Or was what I had learned and taught others wrong, and that the Bible was totally reliable about a recent creation a little over 6,000 years ago in six literal 24-hour days? And so I spent another 16 months looking at the science. After all, I had made the theological decision. But uh, the question was, how did he create? And was the evolution I had learned right or wrong, etc.? And after 16 months, starting with a blank piece of paper, not allowing what I had learned and taught others to influence me, but simply looking fresh at scientific law, natural process, physical evidence, at the end of 16 months, I came to the conclusion, there is no proof whatsoever for evolution. It's a religion. It's not science. It's a fairy tale for adults. When we take a look at law, the first thing that you must have in order to have law is a lawgiver. So... We're all familiar with the law of gravity. We are all familiar with perhaps other laws, genetics, thermodynamics, motion, etc., depending upon your education. Um, but no law can come into existence without a lawgiver. No natural process is of any value unless it's whole and complete. So everybody listening to the podcast is familiar with photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly responsible for somewhere between 98 and 99% of all life on Earth even existing. And yet, if we remove one step in the photosynthetic process, it doesn't work. Therefore, right. photosynthesis, as an example, could never have come about through a slow and gradual process. It's only valuable if it's whole and complete. And, of course, I knew the physical evidence quite well, especially with my background growing up as a child at Berkeley and, and on. And I came to find out that, yes, there are layers of sedimentary rock in the ground. Now, sedimentary rock is just dried out mud, to be very simplistic about it. But that's what it is. It's just dried out mud. And the layers of sedimentary rock in the ground, many of which do contain fossils, not all of them, but many do, um, are not found in the order in the crust of the earth, as shown in the textbooks. Right. What we really see is that the layers are out of order, upside down, backwards, missing. And we see things like polystrate fossils. We see human artifacts in coal seams, supposedly more than 300 million years old. We have recently been finding soft tissue in organisms supposedly up to 500 million years old. None of this, none of this can be explained or predicted by any theory of evolution. And at the end of six months, the last thing I asked myself was, could the law of gravity have ever evolved? After all, it is the universal force which holds the universe together. And I can think of no way that gravity could ever have evolved from something less to be what it is. Therefore, it had to be created whole and complete. And that happened to me one night at the end of a 16-month process. Well... When I realized that, I became a biblical scientific creationist, and I've been teaching on it now for almost 45 years. Okay. So what would you say to the, the arguments of the, the deistic evolutionists who, who basically say this is the process, at least in terms of biological life, that, that there's plenty of evidence that this is the process that God used to 
make all biological life on earth and why can't we interpret Genesis one to be not literal and to be more figurative and to speak of days as, um, you know, ages instead of literal days. Well, you've used a term that you don't hear a lot. So for those listening, I'd like to elaborate a little bit about your nomenclature. We do have deistic uh, and we have theistic evolutionists. The difference is the deistic evolutionist says that there must be a creator, but he's not knowable. The theistic evolutionist says that there is a God and he is knowable, but that the Bible is not a reliable record concerning the creation. That it's, as you say, day-age theory, allegory theory, framework theory, gap theory. There's a variety of ways in which they try to insert evolutionary timescales into a scriptural account. Any plain reading of the Bible, it makes it very obvious through the genealogies that God is talking about a creation roughly 6,000 years ago. Now, I, Georgie, I can't see you, but I'm sure you will agree the older you get, the older the universe gets. True. So it was a lot easier in the year 2000 to say 6,000 years ago. <laughs> but I do personally believe that the entire universe was created in six literal rotations of the Earth, 24-hour periods, uh, a little over 6,000 years ago, because it's good science. Uh, even if I were not a Christian today, even if I didn't believe uh, the God of the Bible was the creator, etc., uh, today as a scientist, I would still have to believe that the universe was only about 6,000 years old because the evidence is overwhelming. We have over 350 scientific arguments demonstrating that the Earth, solar system, galaxy, universe are in fact young and only about 6,000 years old. The genealogy of the Bible, of course, establishes it at about 6,000 years ago. So that is not mere coincidence at all. Uh, the Bible doesn't need science to prove it to be true, but science does back up the Bible. Evolutionists do not have one scientific provable argument that the universe is old. They have five major claims by which they deceive people into believing that it's old, but they do not have one scientific proof. I mean, if they did, I'd have to agree with them, and I don't. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of people listening to this podcast who find what you say, um, they're going to be incredulous. Um, you know, 6,000 years, six literal days. Like, if they hadn't heard your credentials earlier in the podcast, they would be like, oh, my gosh, this this crazy fundamentalist Bible thumper. Um how do you overcome, just out of curiosity, how do you overcome sort of that that idea um, when you initially propose something that is such a foreign concept to most people, particularly if they were educated in the public school system or if they um, went to a university? Well, again, there are, of course, Christian uh, institutions which teach it correctly, but not many, I would point out. Many Christian institutions do not teach it correctly. But the fact of the matter is that we have substantial evidence. Now, anybody who goes to my website at creationworldview.org, we have tons of free articles. Yes, we have a bookstore. We have CDs, DVDs, books, e-books. You know, we've got all that kind of thing. But we have many free articles, and we have free DVD or video-time materials. For instance, 
if you take a look at our website, there's a, <clears throat> a button that says, did you know, question mark, videos. There alone, we have over 150 minor scientific arguments for a young Earth, young universe. Each one of them is less than five minutes long, many of them less than a minute and a half long. A few contain more than one argument, but they're all very short videos. Uh, we have, again, longer videos. We have produced videos like Why I Believe in Young Creation, How Do You Data Rock, What Is Really in the Ground, uh, that people can get video materials. We have books such as Rocks Aren't Clocks, The Young Earth, others. Uh, so the material is readily available, and much of it for free. We have long articles on these things. Almost all the articles on our website are at the popular level. I speak and I write for people that are 5th, 6th, 7th grade up. We do have a small section of technical articles, but it's clearly delineated. And so basically anybody can read our articles and get a lot out of it. And, and we have articles on many of these what are called geochronometers. Mm-hmm. The word geo meaning earth, matter, or universe, chronometer meaning time clock, and a geochronometer is simply an earth time clock, a universe time clock. And there are literally hundreds of these. Uh, I could start with a list, but I couldn't begin to give you the whole list. You don't have the time. Right. But the fact of the matter is we see it everywhere, whether you look in the earth, on the earth, near the earth. So the earth is too hot for it to be old. The earth is spinning at a rate that it can't be old. The the moon is receding from the earth at a known rate, can't be old. Mm -hmm. We found radioactive materials on the moon that can't possibly have been there if the moon was as old as they claim. The moon is still warm. We have lumpy rings around planets. We have barred spiral galaxies. Everywhere you look, you see evidence around you. It's just that people have not been exposed to it. Once you're exposed to it, then you realize the lies of evolutionary time. Do you have any like links to debates, for instance, between evolutionists and creationists, or are there any good ones that you would recommend to people who are interested in the in the topic? There are debates. I've done debates, uh, one every one of them. Uh, I would point out, though, that I personally don't think debates are very useful. I, I want you to understand that, that, that when the Christians started the universities and uh, the academic scholastic way of doing things was debate, starting from the medieval universities. Uh, but today, I don't think they're very useful. Hmm. However, however, that being said, uh, for instance, I've personally defeated a couple of the world's greatest evolutionists, what I mean today. Uh, one of them I've challenged many times, but he won't accept uh, because he simply doesn't want to be seen being defeated by a creation scientist. And the typical response in such cases is, well, we don't want to debate creationists because we don't want to think that they have legitimacy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd totally agree with you on the i found debates to be especially helpful especially when it comes to theological topics but that is a topic for another day uh before we move on though i do want to ask you there there's probably you know some people listening who are like why does this topic why does this topic really matter like it's an interesting you know intellectual exercise um, but like it's all in the past, right? Does it really make a difference whether people believe in evolution or creationism? And 
hasn't science continued apace and still developed a lot of really helpful things um, that have resulted in the modern world we see around us since the time of Darwin? You know, like, why does this matter? Well, first of all, mentioning Darwin is pretty much useless. The fact of the matter is that the modern scientific method was taught by God 4,000 years ago in the book of Job. It was rediscovered by the modern creation scientists 400 years ago at the time of Elizabeth I and following. Men like Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, Boyle, Faraday, uh, Louis Pasteur, George Washington Carver uh, were all creationists. Um, without a Christian foundation, there is no modern scientific method. Because if you think about it, the modern scientific method came about because Christian creation-believing scientists said God is an orderly God. If he is an orderly God, therefore we can, by careful experimentation, meeting certain criteria, Uh, we can gain additional knowledge and do what the Bible says, which is that we are simply thinking God's thoughts after him for the benefit of others. So our experiments are then to benefit all of mankind. So Darwin really doesn't play a role in this. Okay. Okay, Uh, I'm going to nerd out for just one second really quick. Sure. Are you a presuppositionalist? Well, everybody... Everybody becomes a presuppositionist at some point. You presuppose that your bias is correct. Everybody's biased. Mm -hmm. The question becomes, which bias is the best bias to be biased with? And so at one time I was biased as an evolutionist. Now I'm biased as a creationist. That's my starting point when I look at things. And my ministry is creation, worldview, ministries. Now we deal primarily with creation science versus evolution. But we're about worldviews. Right. But it seems that you are um, starting from the foundation that the way that we think derives from the fact that we were created by an orderly God. And you're starting from the foundation of scripture versus a lot of, uh, it seems to me, a lot of creationists come at it from here's all this massive evidence and using the evidence and, you know, their intellectual abilities to then justify the Bible. So are you sort of like on one side or the other? Well, I take both, but the Bible is God's holy word, period. It's inerrant. However, good science supports every word in it. Good history supports every word in it. Therefore, you will find that I will go in a paragraph. I will go from the Bible to science back to the Bible again because I think they both have the same author. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, with, with that in mind, I'm simply pointing out that without a creation worldview based in a biblical worldview, uh, you cannot do the modern scientific method. So evolutionists do modern science, and they use the modern scientific method. But no evolutionist has ever designed an experiment. Uh, assuming that evolution was true, they simply follow the rules of the modern scientific method. They, they test, they verify, they repeat, they have hypotheses. Uh, failure then teaches us this, and it, we go on. So it, it's the same thing as when we went to the moon. You know, We, we came up with a, a question or a challenge. In this case, how do you go to the moon and get back alive? Uh, what did we do? Well, we came up with hypotheses. I think if we do this, we'll, you know, we'll get these results. But we've made many tests. 
we blew up a lot of bad missiles. Uh, eventually, we ended up one which worked pretty good. Yeah. Um, and we eventually got to the moon and back, but we didn't do it with any assumption that evolution was true. Now, unfortunately, much of modern science is being done and funded by the government or private people, whatever, trying to prove that evolution is true, but no experiment has ever accomplished that. Now, they will have spin on their results, and they will spin things to try to get funding, but no experiment has ever proven that evolution was true. Okay. When it comes to faith, do you think you can still be a good Christian and be an evolutionist? Like, it it may matter, but does it matter to that extent of being something that really can hang hang Christians up? Because I know that you said, you know, that was one of the later things after accepting the truth of the Bible and accepting the truth claims of Jesus. Um, you know, that was the, the lingering question. But what what about people who who don't really ever change their mind about it? Does that really does that really matter at all? Okay, well again let's define the terms. If a person believes in evolution one hundred percent, that would preclude them from being a Christian. Because evolution says there's no God. Evolution is atheism. Evolution is not only the basis of atheism, it's the foundation, the taproot of secular humanism, communism, statism. But there's a middle ground, right? There's a middle ground, for instance, the the theistic evolutionists, you know, try and sort of find the middle ground. I was going to address that. You asked a really good question that we didn't have opportunity to answer yet. And that question was, why is the issue of time important? Now, I I openly want to state for everybody on public record that you can believe in an old earth, old universe as a Christian and still go to heaven. That is not the salvation issue. Uh, So, Georgie, you heard me say that, right? Yes. What you believe about the age of the earth and the universe is not the salvation issue. The salvation issue is relationship with the Father through the Son, etc., correct? Yes. Now, Therefore, the age of the earth is not the salvation issue, but it is nonetheless critical to the gospel. And here's why. Any Christian who believes that the earth and the universe are ancient, that is, millions, billions of years old, we're not going to get into specifics, but the generalities, can go to heaven. But what's the problem? The problem is, why? Would you want to believe that? You know, the, the Bible, if we believe it to be God's word, and I'm not even going to use the word inerrant at this point. I'm simply going to say if the Bible is God's word. Clearly, he says that he didn't use millions and billions of years. He said he did it in, you know, six 24-hour days. But why is it important? If you believe that the earth and the universe are millions and billions of years old, the only reason that you would believe that is because you want to believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of supposed years. If that is true, and I want to point out a Hebrew word used in the Bible, it's critical, the word is nefesh. That's the Hebrew word. Uh, but you are believing that a nefesh organism, that is animals, which includes dinosaurs, cats, dogs, rats, cows, you are believing that a nefesh organism died prior to human sin. 
if that is true, and I said if, but if it is true, that makes the death of Christ on the cross meaningless because it would be just the death of another man. It means that human sin is not the causative agent of death coming into the universe. It negates Romans 5.12. It negates 1 Corinthians 15 and, and other verses. It is only when you understand that a recent creation is true, scientifically and biblically, that God started with two people, Adam and Eve, gave them the right to mess things up, which they did, that only as a consequence of human sin did the death of Mephesh organisms begin, then and only then can you understand how the death of one sinless man on a cross can atone for the sins of the world. Therefore, if you believe that animals, plants, possibly, some believe in some sort of a human, living and dying before Adam and Eve, then you're simply saying that death is common. Human sin is not the cause of agent. Christ's death is meaningless. You negate the power of the cross when you do this. Okay. I have to, I'm sorry, I have to nerd out just like one more, one more second. What about the people who would say that when we're talking about death and when it talks about death in Romans, it's not talking about literal death entering the world. It's talking about spiritual death entering the world, in which case it would only apply to humans anyway. Well, let's go back to Genesis for just a moment for those that are listening. Uh, when you read it in the Hebrew, God tells Adam and Eve there's only one rule. Everything was perfect. There's only one rule. You can do anything you want except eat of the fruit of this one tree, correct? Yes. They had only one law, one rule, and they couldn't keep it. Now, when you read this in the Hebrew, it says to Adam and Eve, God saying that if you eat from the fruit of this tree, dying thou shalt die, that there are two deaths, that you will die spiritually immediately, and 900 years later you're going to die physically because of the very result of this, correct? Okay. Now, the, the concept of people who want to then say that Romans is talking only about spiritual death is a false concept when you think about it for a moment. Because of what I said previously, if, if the death of a nefesh organism, now the word nefesh in Hebrew is a word that is translated with three major nuances, uh, starting with Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. Nefesh means life, soul, blood. Remember the Bible says that the life blood. is in the blood, okay. for instance. Yes. The soul is the intellect, the emotion, and the will. What you think, what you feel, and how you tell your body to move around. Now, plants do not have no fish. Plants are one-dimensional. They are biologically alive. They do reproduce, but they do not have blood. They do not have intellect. They do not have emotion. What about, say, insects? Well, again, insects are certainly mobile but they're like little tiny robots. They do not have nefesh. They do not have blood. They've got bodily fluids, but they do not have nefesh. Only higher animals and human beings. So again, we're talking cats, dogs, horses, dinosaurs, and human beings have nefesh. Okay. Now, animals, the higher animals, such as cats and dogs and dinosaurs, have soul but they don't have spirit. Mm -hmm. And again, the soul is the intellect, the emotion, the will. Now, you know, if you've had a pet, cat, or dog, uh, you know they've got emotion. 
when you come home, they are wagging their tail or trying to rub up against your leg, right? And they like their tummy scratched and, mm-hmm. you know, they know when it's hungry and, and they walk around making decisions where to go and when to lay down, when to sleep, etc. But they don't have spirit. Only humans have spirit. We live in a biological body similar to animals, but we're not animals. I would also point out to you, for those that are listening that are interested in the scriptures, uh, this is made very clear in Ecclesiastes 3 and Ecclesiastes 12 as well. But again, if you believe that any nefesh organism died prior to human sin, then you negate that argument, you know, because you're, you're saying that nefesh organisms were living and dying prior to human sin. Therefore, you would have to tear out the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians from the Bible. Now, please tell me what Bible-believing Christian would do that. I see. see where you're coming from. Okay. I I do have another quick question um, along those lines of, of, you know, whether you can be a good Christian and, and be an evolutionist. For instance, I... I know someone personally whose favorite hobby is is reading about creationism and you know defending it at the dinner table and you know with with people that they meet. Um, but I don't see with some people who engage in this as a hobby. I don't see a lot of fruit in terms of witnessing for Christ. For instance, you know if you it, it's fine if you want to defend um, you know uh, intelligent design, but even Muslims believe in intelligent design. Mormons believe in intelligent design. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in intelligent design. What what leads that back to to Christianity specifically? And so I ask you this specifically because you became a Christian and then you considered the question of evolution. But in itself, you know... Subscribing to the idea of intelligent design doesn't necessarily lead you straight to the Christian God, does it? No. And I would point out you left out Jews. Yes. But all the people who do believe in a creator God uh, are what are called people of the book. Uh, That's basically three main religions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. Because all three, at least in theory, except the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Every other religion in the world starts with an acceptance of evolution. So there are only three major religions that start with creation. Again, the issue of time is critical to the gospel, but it is not critical to acceptance of creation, again, as a long-term process or a short-term process. And I mentioned earlier that I would still be a creationist even if I were not a Christian. But you are pointing out something that is very important which is that any Christian who believes in the old earth has a weak witness. They cannot argue effectively. Now, some of them share Christ. Some of them do end up winning some others to Christ. But but they have a weak faith. They believe in a weak God. Think with me for just a moment. Any God who would use an evolutionary process to create is a cruel God because the evolutionary process is cruel. You have life, death, bloodshed. Uh, it is the foundation for abortion, euthanasia, homicide, suicide. Uh, it is the basis for every social ill. It's the basis of racism. It's the basis of the acceptance of pornography and, and many other things. 
so the evolution process is a cruel process. When we take a look at the Bible, God says he didn't do it that way, that he is a loving God. He's a just God, but he's a loving God. And he did not use this cruel process to bring into existence what we see. And if you believe in the millions and billions of years, you're saying that he is a weak God, that there's things he doesn't know, that he's not strong enough to bring it into existence whole and complete at one time. He's not smart enough to bring it into existence whole and complete at one time. There are things he doesn't know, and that he has to do things slowly and gradually, train a wrench here and a screwdriver there to arrive at where we are. And that's a cruel process. Uh, Charles Darwin, since you mentioned him earlier, uh, talked about this himself. He said that evolution was red, R-E-D, not R-E-A-D, but R-E-D, in tooth and claw. And it was a, a cruel process. And the theory of the survival of the fittest and natural selection, though not true scientifically, uh, evolutionists have convinced the public in general that they are, but they're not scientifically untrue. But if that's the case, uh, then there's been life and death going on for millions and billions of years. That's a cruel process. The God of the Bible says that's not the way he does it. He says he's actually El Shaddai, that he is God Almighty, the one who knows everything and is all-powerful, correct? Mm -hmm. And therefore, he would never have used an evolutionary process to bring about what we see today. What do you think are the evolutionists' most persuasive arguments? You you mentioned before that you don't believe that they have proof, but they do have claims. What are their most persuasive arguments? And do lay people, and what do lay people, you know, people like me, for instance, who, who don't have a doctorate, generally lean on when asked to defend their, their position in favor of evolution? And do those overlap? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out... <laughs> Getting a doctorate uh, doesn't mean anything in the sense that that anybody can understand these principles. You don't have to have a doctorate to do that. You don't have to have a doctorate to defend your positions or learn about these things. You can be a good student. Uh, as I like to point out, the only thing it takes to get a doctorate is guts and money. <laughs> and that when you go to the 7-Eleven, they still charge you the same amount for a refill. <laughs> Agreed? That's fair. Okay. Now, in terms of the arguments which evolutionists use, uh, for instance, in my book on creation called Creation Our Worldview, I have a chapter on the nine great proofs for evolution and why they are all false. And I show you how to debunk all of them. Now, first of all, evolutionists have arguments that they use to deceive people into believing the earth and the universe are old and therefore making a slow and gradual process seem acceptable to them intellectually. I would point out that one of their greatest arguments, and I, I hope you're sitting down when I say this, one of their greatest mm -hmm. arguments is, well, it just looks old, doesn't it? Well, I'm sure, mm -hmm. anybody, I'm sure anybody who's seen a Hollywood actress made up to look old, though young, but agree, appearance is no indicator of age. Mm -hmm. And to say it looks old is simply to push a faith position. That's a faith statement. Now, there are many things they use. However, uh, I'm sure we have a short amount of time left, but one of the things I would point out is that evolutionists' favorite argument, outside of it just looks old, doesn't it, uh, is the false proof called the proof by ranking, R-A-N-K-I-N-G. 
This is used in every textbook on evolution you will ever see. It's used on TV ads. It's ubiquitous in movies, etc. You've seen um, the iconic images of a little ape becoming a bigger ape. Uh, they've been using them since 1960 to promote the idea that people evolved mapes. Mm-hmm. This is a proof by ranking. You see a little ape and a little bit bigger ape and a little bit bigger ape, and then finally you see a human. Now, when you look at it, when you look at it, uh, you would have to admit, and I do, I have to admit that the appearance of this makes evolution seem logical or plausible uh, in a mild way. But it does make it seem like, oh, well, yeah, you know, small things get bigger and it makes it easy. But what they don't show you when they do that is the image of the fish walking out of the water that became the little ape. And if I showed you that, you might go, wait a minute. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. The proof by a ranking it simply means the proof by the ability to line things up by size and shape. Anybody with intellect can do that. However, it doesn't prove that one came from the other at all. So, for example, I like to challenge people. If I put a unicycle next to a bicycle, next to a motorcycle, next to an automobile, next to a Hummer, does that prove that Hummers evolved from unicycles? No, but it is a logical order or sequence, correct? Fair. If I had 100 people in a room, or 1,000, I don't care, but if I have a group of people that's large enough, and I were to line them up by their heights, shortest on one end, tallest to the other, you will have that kind of you know, little ape becoming big ape look, correct? Yes. Um, but what are the only two things I've proved? I've proved that, well, people come in different heights, and I have the intellect to put them in a logical order or sequence called a rank. If I take the same 100 or the same 1,000 people, and I do exactly the same thing, but I line them up by a different criteria. This time I'm going to line them up by the month and day by which they were born. So I will start with January on one end, December on the other. Within each of the 12 months, I will line them up 1 through 31 for the day of the month. And once I have the 100 or 1,000 people lined up from January the 1st to December the 31st, what two things have I proved scientifically? People are born on different days of the year, and I have the intelligence to do it. Got it. But in either case, did I prove that, uh, well, did I prove anything about their heritage? Did no. I prove any two of them are married? Did any two of them are father and son? Did any two of them mother and daughter? Did I prove that any of them are aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, or cousins? No. The ability to line things up by size and shape proves absolutely nothing that one kind came from another in the evolutionary sense. And yet, this is their favorite method of proof. I don't care whether it's butterflies or tomatoes or dinosaurs or people. You will see this everywhere. But it proves absolutely nothing. It is stage magic. It is illusion. It is deception. It is simply an illusion to get people to believe that that's what occurred in the past without any proof for it whatsoever. I was going to ask you, just very quickly, in summary, what do you think are the weakest arguments for creationism that you you tend to hear? And you're like, uh, mm, no, you're going to get shot down. Well, there are arguments that some people think they ought to use, and I would agree they shouldn't. But in terms of the arguments that we have that should be used, there's not one that's weak. Okay. The laws of genetics 
are conservative, they are not creative. Genetics conserves previously existing information, passing it on into the next generation. You will never get an increase in intelligence or complexity by random chance. The word mutation in science means copying error. Now, if I were to sit here as an evolutionary teacher and tell you that you're the result of uh, 100 billion uh, accumulative additive mutations, which are copying errors, would you believe that's how you came into existence? Depends on what I've been taught. Well, you might. But since a mutation is a copying error, what that means is that mutations destroy, scramble, lose previously existing information. Since the completion of the Human Genome Project in the spring of 2003, we now know that human beings are losing 1% to 2% of their genetic information per generation. We are not getting bigger, better, faster, smarter. We're getting smaller, slower, and dumber, and that's a scientific fact. Therefore, since mutation is the only, supposedly, biological event that occurs by a random chance in nature that allows us to go from rocks to life and life to amoebas and amoeba to man is simply not true. It's scientifically disprovable. So the laws of genetics disprove evolution. The laws of math disprove evolution. Everywhere we look, we have the proof that evolution is not true. And in science, when you can disprove one, you have to accept the other. Okay. But is there like one, for instance, you said there are some arguments that you, you shouldn't use. What's, can you just name one of those real quick? Well, I don't really deal with those arguments. Gotcha. All I do is I deal with the arguments that are certainly proven that creation is true and that evolution is false. Okay. So if you had somebody sitting across from you right now who really firmly believes that evolution is a solid and you know sufficient way to explain how the biological world came to be and you had like 60 seconds to just sort of get their get the gears turning on this issue what would you say I can do it in less than 60 seconds Okay First, first of all if you just heard what I said about the logic of genetics uh, genetics conserves information it does not create new information the mutations cause a loss scrambling decay of previously existing information my one question in a matter of seconds would simply be please tell me where did the original perfect information come from that we were copying that is a good question thank you <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less from somebody who's a lifetime member of Mensa <laughs> <laughs> well Intertel too so Okay. If you must name drop, I don't. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Murtry. This this conversation has been really fascinating, and thank you for indulging some of my more, um, I don't know, esoteric questions. Uh, I am excited to share this with the 180Cast community. Um, so besides uh, creationworldview.org, where can we follow your work, and what are some good you know, uh, solid resources for people who are curious to learn more about the creation-evolution debate? Well, creationworldview.org. Again, we have tons of free video materials, tons mm-hmm. of free written materials. We do have a bookstore. But we are by no means the only one. And we do have links to other creation groups. Uh, you'd mentioned one previous at the beginning of the program, but uh, we are not them, but we are friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are a variety of other creation science organizations. We do have links 
to them on our website. So anybody who goes there can take a look at what we have, and then they can take a look at what others have as well. Excellent. Remember, if you like the podcast or even if you just are super interested in this episode, please share it with a friend. Better yet, share it with someone who might be on the fence about this issue or is just looking to get a better idea of where the other side is coming from. So thank you for listening and subscribing and following. As always, I look forward to hearing your comments on this and all the episodes. You can get sneak peek tweets of upcoming episodes at 180cast on Twitter, or if you want, you can follow on Instagram or like our Facebook page to keep updated. If you know somebody who's interested, who, um, you know, has done an interesting 180 in their opinions or their lifestyle, let me know about that too. And for those of you who prefer email, you can communicate with me at the180cast at gmail.com. That's the180cast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for a new 180 episode every Friday. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.